You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Let's keep that posture. Keep that posture standing in awe of God as we open up in a word of prayer before we open up the word of God today. Father, what a joy and what an honor it is to stand in the presence of the living God this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, may we never take these moments for granted. May we never miss these moments, Lord, of seeing your glory, of experiencing a fellowship with you through the Holy Spirit along with other believers. This is sweet, God. This is awesome, a glimpse of eternity. And Lord, as we turn our faces to you today, God, we pray that you'd uh, in turn shower us with your blessings. God, would you reveal yourself to us this morning? Would you encourage us? Would you comfort us? Would you strengthen us in our innermost being as we hear your word uh, proclaimed in a straightforward way? God, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? Father, may we, again, may we come here not for any other reason but to, to attune our minds and our hearts and our wills with you. God, may it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to uh, jump into your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, stick your hand up, and we'll be happy to, uh, or it's our privilege to get you um, God's Word that you might uh, hold it and read it and see for yourself uh, the words that God has for you this morning. Romans chapter 8. We finished up last week with uh, 2 Timothy, a courageous series and a real call and a challenge to be courageous, to live our lives all out for Jesus Christ, and yet we always leave a buffer service sermon in here that we can kind of preach what the Lord lays on our hearts and kind of get us to a direction God wants us to go for the summer. And so I want to kind of reiterate all that was said in 2 Timothy, but give you a reason, give you a reason for why you can live courageously. I want to give you hope for the journey ahead. And that comes right here from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And really the whole sermon is about these four words today, these four words. Can't miss them, can't miss them. You can miss a lot of what I say today. You can't miss these four words, and it's this. God is for me. God is for me. I don't know about you, but those are meaningful words to me. I think, I think what happens in our Christian culture, we get so, so used to some words, so comfortable with some passages like this one that we're like, oh yeah, tell me something new, but we miss the meaning and the depth and significance of this a simple foundational truths of the gospel. Here's four words I'd like you to repeat with me after I say them. So easy, you can even memorize them today, probably like in the next two seconds. Let's say it together like we mean it, like it's true, like it's life-changing. God... It's true, 100% true. Yet I realize as we walk through life, if you're like me, you find yourself, if there's anything you doubt, this is one of the things you doubt the most, that God is really for you, especially when life gets hard and when life gets difficult. And I ask myself, this is so important, this is so life-changing, why do we forget this so quickly? Here's four reasons why I think we forget this truth and seem to move on to the Bigger and better doctrines of the faith. Well, you can't move on from this one. Here's four reasons why we tend to doubt and forget that God is for me. Number one is this. We come to understand, some of you here today think that God is too fiction and you're all fact. 
In other words, you don't believe in God, you don't want to believe in God, you never will believe in God, you think you don't need God, and you think he's a fairy tale, so I choose to put my faith in me. If that's you this morning, you're missing the greatest promise God has ever given us, that he will be for you. Some of you maybe uh, believe that God is real, but you um, think that God is too little and you're too big. In other words, your vision of God somehow has become this teeny tiny little God in a box. And you don't think that God is really as big as he really is, and so you're not sure if he really answers prayers, and you're not convinced he has the power that is proclaimed in the word of God. Maybe that's for somebody else, and his promises, well, possibly. So because God's so small and you and your own mind are so big, you've chosen to put your trust in me, and I'm going to stand on me, I'm going to fend for me, and that's all I need. And so you miss the reality that God is for me. Others of us believe this truth, and Understand this truth, and yet this is what keeps you from fully grasping this truth. We believe that God is too big time, and I'm too insignificant. And so we think, why would God waste his time on measly old me? Like, he's the king. I'm just a peasant. He's over everything, and I'm really over nothing. And I think God sometimes has bigger things to deal with in my puny little life. He's got a universe to run. He's got meetings to attend. He's got agendas to accomplish. And he's got VIP Christians to look after. Why would he even care about me? I think that'd be many of us if we were honest with each other uh, today. Here's the last one that keeps us from fully understanding this truth. It's this. It's we've come to believe somehow, wrongly believe that God's too perfect and I'm too messed up. Perfect God, pure God, righteous God. I... Don't even put myself in those same sentences because, man, I mess up every day and I know I mess up every day. And so how could a, how could a perfect God have any time for a little screwed up person like me? I don't think my emails even get into his inbox. And if I was him, I definitely wouldn't draft me for his team and not definitely not put me on the field. Never felt that way before. God's too perfect and I'm just too messed up. We've all thought those things. The enemy wants us to believe those things to keep us from the truth, but the tr your reality couldn't be further from the truth of your follower of Jesus today. Let's read, for, uh, read together what uh, God wants you to know today. Uh, God wants you to put the lies of the enemy, the lies of the enemy aside. He wants you to, once again, attune your heart to the truth of what he says about you, what he wants you to know about him and about yourself today. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to the end together. The subtitle is this, God's Everlasting Love should move us and shape us. Listen, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Just put a little box around God is for us in your Bible. Just those four words, God is for us. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, anything in life? As it is written, doesn't it feel this way sometimes? For your sake we are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Here it is, verse 37. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's a good place for an amen. Amen. Powerful. I know you Christians are thinking, well, I've heard this before, Pastor, preach from a new passage, a new text. Like, this is, the, this is powerful. This is meaningful. This is what God wants us to be reminded of again today. If you're a believer, this is your reality today. It's your truth. If you're here today and you're not a believer, the fact is that God does love you. He is for you. That's why you're sitting here today. He wants you to hear this message that you could also come to know and experience God's love in a, in a life-changing way like, like the rest of us have by no merit of our own, but by God's grace. It's an amazing text, really. If you notice, in the, as you study this, there's seven questions. The text is made up of seven questions that are um, a reality for all of us, seven things that we think will defeat God's plan for our lives. And I think it shows us that God's not intimidated by our questions. Look at the questions that, that are here that I think we all wrestle with at some time throughout our life. You know, if God is for me, then who can be against me is the first question. If God gave me a son, why would he not give me all things is the second question. Is that true? Is that real? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Can anyone charge me? Can anyone condemn me? Can anything separate me from Christ's love? Seven questions that are foundational to grasp as we live our life courageously for Jesus Christ. Let's just start with the first one, verse 31. Look at the first question. What shall we say then to these things? What things? What shall we say to what things? This is the author saying... What should we say about all these things we're learning in the book of Romans? We haven't studied Romans. Let me give you a quick, really quick flyover of Romans 1 to 7. This is the response. This is kind of the climax of Romans 1 to 8. And he's saying, what should we say in, in relation to these things, these truths that we know in the book of Romans? What truths? ESV Study Bible uh, really lays it out for us in an outline very clearly. Let me help you understand. Here's, the, here's Romans chapter 1 to 7 very plainly. It shows us the gospel as a revelation of the righteousness of God. It shows us God's righteous wrath against sinners. It also points to the saving righteousness of God and hope as a result of righteousness by faith. So it shows us the, 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 the glory and the holiness of God. It shows how we are nothing like that. We are broken, messed up sinners. And yet through Jesus Christ, there is hope. And through him in faith, there is comfort and hope for beyond. What shall we say in relation to that? Clearly, God is for us. Look, even at chapter 8 here, just to, what shall we say in relation to these things? Chapter 8, if you understand anything about chapter 8, chapter 8, 1 starts with this. The, there, is there, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. What should we say to that? Man, I know I deserve condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, if you just look at the little subtitles in your, in your Bible, that we are Heirs with Christ and we're called his children that we now aren't slaves or servants. We're sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. Wow. Future glory, the whole creation is longing for a future glory where we're released from this life of struggle and toil. All of creation is longing for that day and we know it's coming through Jesus Christ. 
We have an inheritance that is ours through the Son of God. It goes on to say this, that the Holy Spirit has given us life, not just given us life, but he's also with us in our weakness, and, and he's caring for us and, and carrying, us along, carry, carrying us along the way. And we know in verse 28 that with Jesus, all things work together for good for those who are calling, called according to his purpose. It should never be things that are like, oh, yeah, I know all these things. This is like, 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 what do we just say to these things? We're like, wow, what a God. Clearly God is for us. Amen. Clearly God is for us. How can we respond to these things? Verse 31 here, the second part, is not a question in the sense of like, if God is really for us, do you think God's for us? I don't know, do you think God's for us? It's more of a like, because God is for us, since God is for us, absolutely God is for us, then who can be against us? Don't you feel sometimes that the world is against you? Don't you feel sometimes that you just can't get ahead by trying? It seems like you're constantly fighting and everything's against me and yet the whole world can be against us but if God is for us, it doesn't matter. I know you have your battles just like I do. It seems sometimes that your arch enemy or your nemesis from no fault of yours just wants to ruin you and like, why are they so against me? Why are they so against me? For some of you, your boss wants to fire you and your coworker wants your job. Your ex or your former friend just seems to be out to like ruin your name and What's going on? Is anyone for me? It's a good reminder today that even if the mafia is against you, the whole world's against you, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because God is for you. God is for you. How for you is God? Psalm 118, verses 6 to 7 says this. Write this one down and look it up after and camp on this one. I've been dwelling on this all week. The Lord is on my side. Not the Lord may be on my side, or I hope the Lord's on my side. The Lord is on my side. Let this sink into your heart, no matter where you are in your life this morning. The Lord is on my side, so I will not fear for what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as his helper, and it's not like, oh, God's my little helper. It's he's on my side, and I reach up. He's my helper, like I grab his hand, and he helps me. Look how much God is for you. Look how much God is on your side. Look at how much God has your back. Look how much God helps you. If you're taking notes, the first thing you're gonna write in your notes is this. God graciously gives me everything. God graciously gives me everything. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, how for me is God, you might ask. Here's how for me God is. Verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God graciously gave his son, and he gives us all things. Notice the word gave. Notice the word gives. This is a picture of God's heart for his people. We all know in life there's two types of people, right? There's takers and there's givers. We were around people long enough to think that most people are takers. And so we kind of translate to our view of God and we somehow come to understand God is a taker. Well, God just wants to take my life and he wants to take my resources. He wants to take my time. He wants to take my talents. He wants to take my treasures. God just wants me to give to him. Is some of the mentality some of us have coming into even church this morning. 
Yet the reality of that statement is absolutely, it's absolutely false, 100% not true. God, see the words, God is a giver. God is a, is a gracious giver. He's a generous. Here's the truth about God. God gives and he 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 doesn't stop giving. That's just who God is. Don't forget, that's who your God is. And we give him our lives because he gives us everything else. It's our worship response back to God. But, but, but you ever go to a restaurant with your kids and, and the waitress comes around at the end of the meal and brings a treasure chest of toys, you know, and it's for the gift for the kids and all my kids' faces light up. Even Zach's, although he tries to hide it, he wants the gift too, he wants the treasure. And they open it up, they're like, take it, take it. Here. Here's what God does with his children. He has a treasure chest of blessings and gifts in heaven that, that he loves to open up and just bestow good gifts to his children and blessings. It puts a smile on his face and it puts a smile on ours. That's the type of God that we serve. He is for you. He's so for you. He gave up his son for you. He graciously gives me everything everything, but he says right here, he gave us the most important thing, his most precious gift, his son. Look what it says here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is a generous act of God. He gave, he, he willingly and willfully gave his son. It wasn't you crawling up into heaven saying, yeah, I figured out this Jesus thing. I'm gonna take him as my own. No, it's God saying, I, I give to you the most precious gift you could ever have imagined to be bestowed upon you, the gift of my son. Think about that for a minute. God gave you the gift of his son. It's mind-boggling to me. I think I told you before, the first funeral I ever did was a 20-year-old young man who passed away from an overdose a week before he went to Teen Challenge. And his dad wanted the youth pastor to have a significant part of this funeral at 26 years old. I remember standing up to give the address, and quite honestly, I could, I could barely get through it because here I am looking at the grief of a father mourning the loss of his son. I mean, you have a son at that point, but it's... I remember going to the graveside and trying to do that thing and I couldn't even hold it together and, and just seeing, seeing the, the grievous loss of a father, of a son upon a father and we're getting the hearse at the end with the funeral director and the senior pastor and they're all joking, oh, you're gonna get callous to this, you'll, get, you'll figure it out, little young softy, you know what I mean? I was like, I hope I don't get used to this. My first experience of what it really means for God to give up his son for us he didn't just give him up. This is, this is how God gave up his son. He, he's up in, in glory with God. It's like God gave him the proverbial hug and, and he sent him on his way without packing a thing for him. He sent him on his way to the, to the ghetto compared to eternal glory and, and he was, sent him on his way to, to watch him live this life. Remember, heaven perfect to live his life here on earth with all the ridicule and all the rejection and all the getting railed upon his whole life, ultimately to die on a cross and to watch his son have nails hammered through his hands. Are you picturing this with me? This is how much God loves us. He let his son get nails through those hands. If you have a son, just grapple, grapple with this with me. And then it's nails through his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head mockingly. What in the world? Did God not love his son? You kidding me? Of course God loved his son perfectly and purely. Part of the darkness of Good Friday was the whole universe, the whole cosmos was mourning the death, the loss of the son of God. 
If you loved him so much, then why, why did he give him up for me, for us all? It's really the doctrine here that is being pointed to, the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement, simple meaning God gave him up for us all because that is our only hope, Jesus Christ. To be with God here on this earth, to have a relationship with God, to be with God forever, it's perfect. He, he, he's perfect, he demands perfection. And, and anyone fall into that category here? None of us. And the penalty for imperfection isn't a little slap on the wrist, it's actually death. You strive for it just like me, and you, I just can't do it, I can't do it. You can't do it, and, and your, the, the penalty for your punishment, the punishment for your sin is death. So our sin is too intense, the penalty is too much for us to bear, and so what did God do? He sent his son to take our place. That's what substitutionary atonement means. He took our place, he atoned for our sins, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we should have died, that Christ would forgive us, that God would forgive us through his son. Pray you never move on from these elementary truths of scripture for a great way to end the year, just to be, just hit the gospel again, hit the gospel again. We need, we need this constantly in our lives. Foreshadowing of this whole substitution came with Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22. Remember that story? God, hey, Abraham, I want to see if you really love me. I want you to give up your only son of whom all my promises lie upon. I want you to give him up for me. Abraham's yes, God, I will. And somehow he convinced his teenage son to crawl on an altar. He allowed himself to be tied up, ready to be sacrificed. Abraham gets the old dagger up, and God's like, no, Abraham, no, it's just a test. Can you imagine trying to pass that test? Abraham's, whew. Same time by coincidence, not a ram gets caught in the thicket, right? They take the, the, the ram and they put him on the altar and it's just a picture of God's willingness to sacrifice because God actually fell, fell through with that scenario. He sacrificed his son for you. It's also pointing us to Jesus becomes a sacrificial ram or the sacrificial ram for our lives. We deserve to be on that altar. Why? Because God is for you. Yes, for God so loved the world, but let's be honest. For God so loved, put your name in there. For God so loved. Powerful. And yet look what the text says. Look what the text says. It's not just that God was willing to give up his son for us. Look what goes on next. He also gives me everything, I, everything else I need in life. Jesus is the gift, the only gift we truly, truly need, and yet God gave along with his son, why will he not also graciously give us all things? If God would give us the precious of the precious of the precious gifts, the most precious gift ever, why would he not also be willing to give us all things that we, not that we want, but that we need for life? It'd be like your parents giving you a million dollars and you pop them by their house and saying, well, they probably won't want to give me a grilled cheese. Are you kidding me? They gave you everything. Why did they not give you this? Everything else is just piddly compared to the million dollars. Everything else is piddly compared to Jesus. It's not that God had to give us everything else. He's not obligated. It's not like, you know, we're the entitled kids saying, oh, God, come on, Dad, give me, give me, give me. And he's like, all right, I'll give you. He willingly and graciously wants to give us all things. What does it mean, all things here? I think we have to understand this. What does it mean, all things? You know what it means in the original language in the Greek? You know what all things truly means? It truly means all things. I knew there was a catch. No, it truly means all things. Not everything you want, because even bad parents don't do that for their kids. But I want, but I want, but I want. Too bad, kid. We give you what's good for you. 
Not everything you want, but everything you need to be and do what God wants you to be and do in this world. If you need it, get this, you already have it in Jesus Christ. It's like God giving us a blank check for our deepest and true needs. Did a little study on the all things in the scriptures this week. Listen to some of the all things that would fall under this category of all things. Kind of a big category, all things. Let me help you understand some all things that God has said to define all things. First Chronicles 29, 14, God tells us that all things come from him. All things come from him. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. Everything you have, whether you believe in God or not, everything you have comes from God. No, it doesn't. I worked hard. No, everything you have comes from God. Especially the good things. God's common grace on all men is he's given all men good things, even those who choose to reject him. God's saving grace upon us has bestowed upon us many more good things, but every good thing you have in your life comes from one place. And it's, got, it's sourced in one place. Trace it all back. It comes back to God, your heavenly father. He's given you all things. Oh, this one, Philippians 4.13, I can do, say it with me, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In other words, all the strength that you need each and every day comes from God. He promises that he can accomplish what he set out for you to accomplish through his strength. All strength. It's not strength to say a prayer and I'll score the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. That's not it. It's not all things like, God, give me this idea so I can make myself a million dollars. That's not it. All things that you need to be and do who God's called you to be and do. Well, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God gives you all grace, it says in this text. So having all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God gives you the tool belt and the credit card to accomplish the good things he wants you to accomplish in this life. There's no sitting back going, I can't do it. Yes, you can. He's giving the tool belt and the credit card to accomplish it. 2 Peter 1.3, God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life. What do you think that means? It means wisdom and guidance and comfort and courage. What do you need in life? We have different needs in life. What do you need in life? God promises to give you all things that you need for life and godliness. I know it's supposed to be godly, but I'm not sure God will give you everything you need to make godly choices and to be the husband you're called to be and to be the wife that you're called to be and the child you're called to be, to be the friend and the mentor you're called to be. God will give you all things for life and godliness. In other words, to help you live in righteousness for the glory of Jesus, he will give it to you because he promises to because he's for you. What about this one? Ephesians 1, 3, last one. It's technically not all things in the text, but it's all spiritual blessings. In the text, it says every spiritual blessing. I figure every and all are pretty close, don't you think? He gives you every spiritual blessing. He adds blessings upon blessings, like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls and having your mouth open and saying, God, like, I, I need some blessings. God's like, are you kidding me? I'm drowning you with blessings. You can't contain all my blessings. This is how good God is to you. Even the most important blessings uh, that money can't buy, the hope and the peace and the meaning and the purpose and the joy. God promises us all things. Think about that for a minute. Read it with me. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I know some of you are thinking, then why don't I have all the things that I need? Maybe because you don't need all the things you really think, the things that you think you need, you have everything you need according to what God has for you. 
But if only I could have, if I wish I had, then I could find, then I could be, then I could do. Here's the thing. You have everything you need. But the Bible does tell us that sometimes we don't have what we need because we don't ask God for it. Sometimes you don't have it because you haven't asked for it. Well, I don't believe God's going to really answer my prayers, and I'm just going to muddle through on my own. And like, you think you need it, bring it before the Lord. If you need it, he will give it to you. Here's another reason why the same passage points out for, the, for us that maybe we don't have everything that we think we need. It's because you, ask, you and I ask selfishly, we ask selfishly for things, wanting to spend them on ourselves instead of spending them on the glory of God. Oh, but God, if I could just have that house and that car and, and these talents and abilities, then I'll serve you. And really, you not really want to serve God. You want to serve yourself. Need is the key word. It doesn't say this in the text, in the scriptures anywhere, because it tells us often God gives us what we need. But according to that text, if I don't have it because I haven't asked for it, it's because I'm going to use it selfishly spend on myself. If I don't have it, it's probably because I really don't need it. Here's how much God is for you. When you ask God for needs, he delivers faster than Amazon Prime. The things that you can't buy on Amazon Prime. That's the love of a father for you. Take time to synthesize that in your minds and hearts today. It goes on. It's not just everything God gives us. Here's another thing God graciously gives us. He silences my accusers. Look at this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Isn't this true what we battle so often in life? We battle the charges. We battle the condemnation. What's a charge? It's really an accusation of, you know, someone gets charged in life for speeding or for robbery or whatever. It's an accusation. This person did this. And they deserve a penalty. What's condemnation? It's the sentence being handed down and the, the, the sentence being doled out and it's finished. This is the sentence you deserve. Well, who can put any charges before us? Who can condemn us? Who? The, the obvious answer is nobody. It's true. We battle charges and condemnation our whole lives. And it ultimately isn't the evil one that's most prevalent in this, although he has a big part of it. Think about this. The charge and the condemnation that you fight the most often come from right here. True? It's true for me. You know the skeletons in your closet. You know your sinful tendencies. You know you try so hard and just can't seem to do it, and so what do you do? Like, ah, I suck. I'm no good. God can't love me. He won't love me. I'm useless. I'm worthless. Then we have other people in our lives that are really quick to pile on that train, aren't they? Even in the church, I don't get it, but we're so quick on the judgment and charge and condemnation thing. You're already feeling like you're under the boulder and then someone else comes along and says, yeah, I saw what you did there. That's not godly, you know. You can't be a Christian. Are you sure that you really know Jesus? Do you know your Bible well enough? Oh, a real Christian wouldn't do that. I know that for sure. I don't think who you are, who you say you are. The charges and the condemnation, man, it gets heaped on. You've been on both sides of that, so don't start thinking, well, people do it to you, you do it to others too. Who can throw any charge against you? You can't. Who can condemn you? The people that think they're the judge and jury in your life. It doesn't matter what they think. They're not the judge and jury. 
The enemy, you know what his number one job is in life? Is to discourage you and to derail you from God's purposes. He has no power over you. So you know what he does? It says this in Revelation 12, 10. You know what he does? He gets you with lies. He can't touch you, so he gets you with lies. He's, he's the one who's, who's the accuser of the believer. You just stand there whispering in your ear all, all day long. Yeah, yeah, you are right. You do suck. Yeah, they're right. You're not a good Christian. Oh, you're going to do that for the Lord? Your motives are horrible. Oh, really? You think you're... True enough? He's the accuser of the brother, and his job is to, is to, to drag you out, to, to, to pull you out of your home, and to drag you into a field and bury you alive to give you every reason to give up on yourself, your family, your friends, your church, and your God. That's what the enemy wants to do. It doesn't matter what you think, honestly. It doesn't matter what others think. It doesn't even matter what Satan thinks. Thank the Lord. Because look what it says next. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those that God has chosen, who's called out of the world. It is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. This word justification is a legal term talking about declaring you innocent and in right standing with God through Jesus Christ. It's a legal term signifying complete acquittal, much equivalent to the pardon in today's economy. Government pardons somebody, their record is gone. It's like they never, never happened, never had anything against their name. That's what, that's what Jesus does for you and I. So it doesn't matter what other people think. Look at his death and his resurrection forgave and defeated all the sin that you're holding yourself back with that others are trying to pin you down with and that the enemy wants to overwhelm you with. Jesus has absolutely, the highest court in the universe has absolutely absolved you of all of your responsibility for sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? Amen. I'm just being flooded with relief even as I preach. There's no reason I should be standing here if it was up to me or you or Satan, yet God in his mercy through Jesus Christ acted on our behalf. That when the charges come and the condemnation comes, we can be done with it. I love the picture that we see in Zechariah 3, uh, 1 to 2. Two, it's Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and the enemy right at his right hand, right at his right hand, whispering. I don't know what he's talking about, but he's just saying, like, you know, I think, I think God I deserve. He deserves nothing. I think that God had done a pretty good job. He's done a horrible job. I think that God, that, that, no, he doesn't think anything about you, God. He doesn't understand you, God. And, and the enemy's accusing and trying to bring down. And what's God's response? The enemy's probably right in 99% of what he's saying because we're all broken and fallen. What is God's response to the high priest Joshua? An angel of the Lord comes and he's standing there in all his dirty garments. This is a vivid picture. His dirty garments showing our state before God. Dirty garments where righteousness is as filthy rags. What's the angel come and do? He takes that filthy garment off without saying a word and just puts a robe of righteousness all over him. That he can stand confident and complete in God's presence. This is what Jesus does for us. That inner voice that wants to charge you and condemn you, you know what you can say? Shut up. And get in God's word and say, this is what's true about me. You know others, when they want to charge you and condemn you, you can nod and smile. Don't, don't fight back. Just nod and smile and walk with your head held high saying, oh, they're so foolish. Because Jesus already has absolved me from that. You can go on held, held high. You know when the enemy comes at you, you can say like, you know, you can punch him in the face with the, the truth of God's word. Is it true sometimes the enemy, you just want to punch him in the nose? He's going to be like, shut up! 
You know how you fight the enemy? You get in the word of God and replace all the lies. He's put all the truth, and that just shuts the enemy silent. You think God's not for you? He silences your accuser every time. Look what else. He's my advocate before the Father. Not only does he silence the accuser, he's the advocate. He, look at this. He, was, he died to cover our sins. He was raised that we'd have new life, that we'd have the old garments of soiled garments taken off and a new garment of purity put on, pure white. And he's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. This, again, is fitting with legal terminology in this text. It's a picture of a courtroom, the highest courtroom of the universe, the supreme court of God. And he's... Jesus is acting on our behalf. He's like our defense lawyer. Pro bono, it's like the people who can't hire a lawyer. It's like, oh, we'll give you this guy. Well, ours is the best lawyer in the universe. It's Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm gonna intercede for you. In other words, you sit in the defendant's box. I'll do the talking now. You let me doing the talking before the judge. Here's the thing about Jesus and the judge. They're tight. He's got an in with the judge. You got a defense lawyer in high places. He knows exactly what to say and how to say it. So the judge looks upon you as innocent. We tell Jesus what we need, and he says, It's okay, it's okay. Like you, I got it. I'm going to go to the judge on your behalf. We don't even know what we need. Just like, here, you sit here and smile. I'm going to go to the judge on your behalf. Don't you worry. This case is as good as closed. Don't you love this? Jesus is interceding for you. We often wonder what he does at the right hand of the Father. He's just up there like hanging out and we know he's preparing a place for us. What's he doing in the meantime? Playing golf? Waiting for us to bring our clubs up and play with him? No, you know what he's doing in the meantime? He's interceding for you at the throne of God on your behalf. He's telling God everything that you, he's praying for you. He's praying for you. I can pray for you. I don't know what to say. I do my best. God is praying exactly, Jesus is praying exactly what you need and how you need it to God the Father on your behalf. Does that not give you comfort and hope? If you have any prayer warriors in your life, my mom has always been the prayer warrior of my life. And I remember skipping home on spares, even and busting in the house. Mom, where are you? She's like, I'm praying. I'm like, oh my goodness, for what? She'd be like, you. And I'd be like, carry on. <laughs> Do your thing. Even better than that, we bust into Jesus, wonder what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He's praying for you. <laughs> wow, you love me that much? You're going to. What's he praying for you? John 17 tells us what he's praying for you. Just so you don't get any misconceptions about this. He's not praying that, oh, give them comfort. Help them be, have an easy life. Here's what Jesus is praying for you. He's not praying that you be taken out of the world. It says in John 17, the high priestly prayer, but he's praying that you'll stand strong against it. That you'd be guarded from the evil one and kept from the enemy. That you'd be sanctified through the word of God. That God would change you into his image through his word. That you would know the truth. That you would be one with other believers. His last prayer, most profound prayer, is that you and I would be one. That we'd be conjoined through the Holy Spirit. That God's love would be in us. And that Jesus would reign through us. That the world would see the reality of God. I was only going to preach to there, and maybe I should have because there's so much more to say. But just stop and think about those things. God is for me. Look, he gave up his son for me. He gives me everything else I need. He silences my accusers. He's an advocate before the Father. For real? Why do we doubt? Why do we wonder? Anchor your heart to this truth today. It gets even better, believe it or not. Verse 35, right to 
36 show us that God is closer than life itself. Not only has God done all of those things for us, given us his son, he gives us all things, he's doing all these, working all these realities out in our lives, but also, also, God is closer than life itself. So, so, so who do you think could ever separate you from the love of Christ? It's almost a rhetorical question. Like, really, now you think? Now, who do you think you are to think somebody can, something or somebody can separate you from the love of Christ? Really, even life can't separate you from the love of Christ. Look what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet even in life's darkest times, the truth that you need to know again today is this, that God promises to love you until the very end through every scenario and circumstance of life. In fact, John 13, 1 tells us that, that um, God will love his own to the very end. You think about God's love in yourself, think conjoined twins. Without any medical procedures, think conjoined twins. Where you go, his love goes. Where his love goes, you go. That's the way it works. Think those big magnets at the science center. You know, the big powerful force that no one can rip apart. Even the strong man can't rip apart. That's God's love. Nothing can rip you apart from God. Even you in your worst days can't rip you apart from God. What about this scenario, pastor? What about this scenario, pastor? Well, God covers all the scenarios in his word right here. That's why he lays it out. So tribulation... Will tribulation take you from the love of God? Here's what tribulation is. It's not the end times. It's those pressure cooker situations. Literal meaning pressure cooker situations. Where it feels like the world is squeezing in on you that cause you to sweat and toil for each and every breath. The word tribulation comes from the ancient word tribulum, which is a, a, an instrument. It's like a sled that they used to thresh grain when they brought the grain in from the field. It's a sled with metal spikes or metal strips in the bottom, and they put the grain down, they take this sled, and they slap it down and drag it over to separate the chaff from the, the head of the grain. Tribulation, even tribulation, even those times where you feel like you're on the threshing room floor and there's metal spikes being dragged across your back. Guess what? Guess what? God still loves you. He's never left you or forsaken you. I don't know what you walked in here today with, but everyone walked in here with something today that's causing you to wonder, is God with me? God loves you in your darkest times of tribulation. When the call comes that you or your loved one has cancer, God loves you in that season. Even though all the abuse you've been through in your life that no one else can possibly understand, guess what? God was with you and loves you even in that. It's hard to fathom, but it's true. Maybe you've been bullied your whole life. Maybe you've been through those divorces that have wrecked your family and you've had a parent that maybe has walked out on you. I don't know what your scenario is. Maybe your kids are going off the rails. Or you're fearing failure or the future or loneliness is plaguing your soul or rejection, whatever crazy, unprecedented circumstance you are facing, you can know this, that that can't take you from the love of Jesus. Well, what about distress then? What about distress? What's distress? The literal meaning of that word is being hemmed in or pinned down. For claustrophobics like me, that causes me stress just thinking about being hemmed in or pinned down. When you feel stuck... 
When you crawl in that snow fort with your friends, they promise they won't block the tunnel off, and then they do anyways. Remember that feeling? For claustrophobics, that's not a good feeling. That's when you put the hole in the top, and you're out before they know it, and you make the magic director fort. What about times of distress that cause anxiety and sometimes depression, and it just feels like you're stuck. You can't move anymore. You're suffocating, and your relationship with God just seems stuck. You're the husband and wife, your relationship with them just seems stuck. Now, the word that dominates your mind these days is stuck. Your job's stuck. Your, everything just seems stuck. Can that separate me from God's love? Not a chance it can. What about these scenarios? Persecution, that's not suffering for just being born into a sin-cursed world. That means that you're actually taking a stand for Jesus, and if you do that, for sure, you stand for Jesus and his word. People are going to call you names. They're going to ostracize you. You might lose your job. And you might seem like you're all alone. Has God left you then? Absolutely not. He's right beside you. What about the times when, when economic struggles come and there's famine or there's nakedness? Then it must mean that God's truly left me, right? And there's nothing in my fridge and I can't find that silly job. And that must be a sign that God's finally left me the furthest thing from the truth. God's still with you in that. When you can't even feed your belly, God's feeding your soul constantly that you'll never be overwhelmed. What about nakedness? Glad we're not there today. But what about the kids in other countries? They're naked. Does that mean God doesn't love them? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that. God surely loves them. Even when you're denied the most basic human rights, is basically what that is, God still loves you and has not left you. What about danger? We live in a dangerous world in dangerous times. Turn the TV on and so many things that can cause us stress. But you know what? No matter what danger comes your way, whether a stalker's stalking you or someone's trying to steal your identity or even trying to be done with you, guess what? God's love is right there with you. What about sword? That's a dagger used by assassins. What about then? What about then? No, no. Anything that you go through that even makes you feel like a sheep being led to slaughter, even those days where it feels like all you're doing is marching along with the other sheep and all you're going is to doomsday, it's the end, guess what? God still loves you. And God is with you. Can't see him, I don't believe it. You don't have to see him for it to be true. You don't have to feel him for it to be true. It's true because it's true because it's true. Two questions we ask ourselves when these things come, well, where was God? We know where God was. He's right there with you. Second question is, why God? Wish I could answer that question for you. We're going to know that question on the other side of heaven. But, but the where one can be resolved today. He's with you. Read this story that really brings this point home from a 2010 a tornado that went through a mobile home park in Jackson, Mississippi. And a young woman by the name of Nikki Bradshaw Carpenter, she was with her in the trailer with her three boys and someone gave a phone call. Hey, there's a tornado coming. It's coming straight at you. You know, get ready. And instinctively, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So what she did, she took her three boys, seven, uh, or sorry, six, three, and two. They, she put them on the floor. She put all the pillows she could think on top of them and then she laid on top of them. When her cousin found her, after the storm had passed, on top of her was a refrigerator, a freezer, and half the ceiling, and every one of those children lived because of the love of the mother to lay herself out for her kids. The storms are coming. 
They're a howling. There's nowhere to run or hide, but you can be assured of this. There's going to be pillows on top of you, and God himself is going to lay himself out for you. Jesus already laid himself out for you. God promised that he will cover you. He'll protect you. I'm not saying you won't get hurt. I'm not saying that some of those things might, might not end your life, but through the whole process, here's what's going to happen. God is going to be covering you completely. There's no reason to fear, and there's no reason to run away from him. In fact, if you look at Scripture, Scripture says the storms are coming. It just doesn't promise ever perfect life. Where we got that notion from, I think the enemy. In fact, you read 1 Peter. You read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, Beloved, that's you and I, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Although something strange has happened to you. Oh my goodness, this is strange. It's not happening to anyone else. It's happened to me. Untrue. It's actually talking about suffering for being a Christian, but also living in a broken world. Then verse 19 says this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. Do you hear that? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. I mean, God's will sometimes includes suffering? Absolutely, his word says so right there. But let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while still doing good. Storms are coming. Our job is to entrust our souls to God, the faithful creator and to keep doing what we know we're supposed to keep doing good second corinthians chapter 4 reminds us same truth different words get listen to this but we have this treasure in jars of clay it's jesus christ it's the gospel to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Hope, comfort, encouragement to be courageous, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it, and he is safe. Where do you run to in times of trouble? Do you run into Jesus? Do you run away from him? God's saying, run to me. No matter what you're going through, run to me, run to me. I will keep you safe. And in all these things, in all these things, it says in verse 37, and all the things we just talked about, we know this, that with God, I will conquer in all these things, all, this thing, all these things, does that mean that God is going to bend you? No way. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This word conquer in the original language means to hyper-conquer or over-conquer. It means you're the conqueror of all conquerors. What's your image of conqueror when you, when I say conqueror, what do you think of? I think of this right here. I think Edward the conqueror and this, this gladiator conquered England and then, and then in his Reign over England, so many things happened. He built kingdoms and he was conquering, he was conquering. He was the conqueror of conquerors back then. Guess what? This is a picture of you in Jesus Christ, but I don't feel like a conqueror. Interesting, eh? It goes from like sheep being led away to slaughter. That's how we feel, to being more than conquerors. You ever heard of sheep being conquerors? There's no football team called the, like, the, the, the St. Catherine Sheep. Can you imagine? The new NHL team is going to be called the, the, the Quebec City Lambs. Absolutely not. It's like, what? what? How can we conquer them? We're sheep. <laughs> Battle cry. <laughs> How can we conquer? Because the, the, the king, the lion of Judah, is our coach. He's our captain. And he's our star player. 
And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Look at this, look at this. What can, what can overcome us? None of these things. And all these things, I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. For I am sure, or I am convinced, or I am positive that neither death nor life, even when you take your last breath, you go to the grave. The grave isn't the end. It's just a tunnel towards heaven is all it is. It's just a passageway to heaven. Death nor life, no matter what comes at you in life, it doesn't matter. They can't take you from the love of God, nor angels, nor rulers. Things in the spiritual realm, they have no power over you to separate you from the love of Christ, nor things present, nor things to come, no matter what you're going through today or what you're going to go through tomorrow, the unexpected news you get tomorrow, you don't have to fear it. It doesn't matter. They can't separate you from the love of Christ, nor powers on this earth or in heavens, nor height, nor depth, the ups and the downs of your living your life for Jesus Christ, nor anything else in all of creation, even if the sinkhole of all sinkholes is to swallow us all up right now, if the earth combusts and we are all instantly disintegrated, guess what? Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Jesus Christ, Amen. to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is true. This is pie in the sky, pump you up sermon. It's not. This is just true, and it's true, and it's true, and it's true because it's true. This is true that you can live with confidence and courage for whatever is coming this week, this month, this year. God is on your side. God is on my side. Martin Luther wrote this to really bring it all home and tie it all nicely together in his song, A Mighty Fortress. A man that stood against the spiritual forces, prevailed against the earthly forces, and wrote a hymn about it. And this is what he said in A Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dust ask thou, dust ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And you must win the battle. Because when it all comes down to it, it's gonna burst some of your bubbles, but guess what? God does love you and he's for you, but you know who he loves and is for more than anything else. He's for himself and his own glory. And so God's gonna be faithful because he is faithful to himself and his own glory. And God's jealous for his own glory. And so he'll be faithful to you, yes, because he loves you, but because he wants the world to see the reality of him through your life, even in the hardest, darkest times. He will never fail you, for he'll never fail himself, and his promises will always be true. God is first and foremost for his own fame and his own glory. And because of that, he'll never let one of his children fall by the wayside. And because of that, he will let you be a more than conqueror in everything you come up against in this life on your way to eternity. Four words. You probably could have them memorized by now. God is for me. Life changer. If you just live it out now. By the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I needed that for my own soul this morning. I know so many in this room also needed it for their souls. Father, I pray today by the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, God, that you would allow these truths to sink from our heads to our hearts to our wills, God. 
For those here today that are falling into the Satan's, into Satan's lies and, they're, and they're, they're thinking that they can't possibly be called a child of God because of all that they are, all that they've been through, and, and they, don't, they doubt your love, God, oh, Father, today I pray that you'd give even some in this room faith to believe for the first time that you are God, that you are Savior, and that you desire them to be your child. Father, would you give saving faith today in the midst of a message that God is for me? Father, for those that are walking in discouraged, they're walking in doubting, they're walking in feeling beaten up like a sheep going to slaughter. Father, I pray today by the God of all grace and the God of all comfort that you just give them hope, you give them strength for just another day today. Father, may they put their whole hope in you. May they stop striving. May they stop trying to earn anything or trying to be more spiritual than they are. May they just come to you, Jesus. May they run to their strong tower today and would they know the, the safety that is in your arms. God, for those today that are here that are aiming to live out their faith, that are firing on all cylinders, God, I pray that you just give them more fuel for the fire. God, I pray that this would just uh, catapult them into the week this week more courageous than ever before, knowing that even if the whole world's against them, even the whole world's against them, God, you are for them and you're right beside them. You've given us your son. You've given us everything else we need. You silence our accusers. You intercede at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, you are our everything. We're overwhelmed by it this morning. You're our everything. We're not even sure how to respond, but to tell you we love you, God, and we give you our whole lives. We, we, we want you. We choose you. As you choose us, we choose you. We surrender all again this morning. We give you our whole lives. We ask that you reveal yourself to us in great and mighty ways. For the glory of your Son. Amen.